be in Psalm 24. If you have a Bible, let's open up there. And I want to remind you, on Friday nights, we have a Spanish study at 7 a.m., and then Saturday morning, we have a men's prayer and proverb group that gets together. And so if you guys uh, want to come out, I think that's a real a life-changing experience, man, getting into the Proverbs with the men. And so that's Saturday morning at 8 a.m. But today we're going to be in Psalm 24, and it's an awesome psalm. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing, and then we'll come back, and hopefully we get to dig in. And notice what it says here, verse 1. It's a psalm of David, and we read that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And so that right there is really uh, a, a passage that describes the ownership. God owns it. He, he made it. He maintains it. He owns it. So it's number one, ownership. But, but then there, there's this question of fellowship. And we read next in verse 3. The psalmist asks, well, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. And so there's this aspect of ownership that then moves into fellowship. You might even call it relationship. But, but then it, it ends, and this is kind of a funny one, so I, I want to make you guys smile. It ends with battleship. Do you guys like that word? Because Jesus is coming back to make war. And that's what we read next in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. You know, uh, I'm going to share this with you. Uh, we've been kind of slowing down in the Psalms, and it's kind of cool. You know, I don't know how you feel about it. Um, I, I just thank God for his word, you know. But a lot of the studies, when you go and you search on online everywhere, a lot of them, they're covering five, six Psalms a night. Even three is a lot. And they're not really, you know, you're able to get everything out that you want to get. So it's been kind of cool as the Lord would lead us, you know, to slow down periodically because the Psalms are so life-changing. They're so life-changing. You know, like, like the Proverbs, I believe that you should be reading the Proverbs every day, you know. It, it'll give you wisdom for life, so you won't be a fool. Uh, you'll have a full life instead of living a foolish life. The Proverbs are so important, but the Psalms are important as well. And I think, you know, I would encourage you, and it's between you and the Lord, but I would encourage you to be in the Psalms every day as well. You know, they're, they're there, there's so much prophecy, there's so much comfort when you're going through hard times, and that's one thing you can always count on in the church, and life, and, you know, just the way it is, man, that so many people are going through hard times. And so when they come to me and they, they, they say, well, what should I do? You know, you give them counsel, but you always tell them when they're going through hard times, 
read the Psalms. God will comfort you because David went through so many trials and these guys went through so many trials and, and what you'll find is that they're honest and they'll comfort you. And there's so much that we learn, you know. Here we see, number one, uh, the ownership of God. In verse one, David simply says that everything belongs to the Lord and everyone belongs to the Lord because he is the one who made it and maintains it. Notice again there in verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. That's everything in the earth, right? The world and those who dwell therein. That's, that's all the people. The, the reason being is because he laid the foundation upon the seas and he established it uh, upon the waters. And so, you know, to me, it makes perfect sense. He, he owns it because he made it and he maintains it. Now, it's interesting, Paul the Apostle quoted this passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26 and 28. And, it, you know, it's, it's the way that it works, it's, it's kind of fascinating because what he does is he makes the same two points in 1 Corinthians. Uh, there, he's uh, teaching on meat offered to idols. And it's interesting because he, he gathers these two points, basically saying, number one, the meat belongs to God. Imagine that. The meat belongs to God. Yesterday we had tri-tip. It belongs to God, you know? I mean, everything, everything belongs to God. And so it's interesting when he's making the point, the meat belongs to God and the people belong to God. We see that there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26. And so he teaches the Corinthians to go ahead and eat the meat if no one says anything about the fact that it's been offered to idols, but if they do say something, he says, then don't eat it for the conscious sake of the individual who gave you the meat. And that teaching is based upon the fact that everything is the Lord's and everyone is the Lord's. And, and that right there is hugely significant. You know, that, that you know, car you drive is not yours. That house you live in is not yours. That, that dollar, some of you here, you only have a dollar in your pocket. It's not yours. That life you live, it's not yours. The time that we have, it's not ours. It's the Lord's. He owns everything and everyone. And when this really hits home, it's life-changing. Because when you understand the ownership of God, then you kind of move into, I would give a sub-point here, the stewardship of man. You know, it's not mine. You guys ever borrow someone's car and maybe you drive a little bit more careful because you know it's not yours? I don't know if you guys ever do that or not. You know, or, you know, tools. It could be, um, you know, different things that you, you end up having that belong to someone else. And for whatever reason, you treat it a little different. I mean, and, and so when we have our own stuff, you know, we might be a little bit more casual with it. But, but it begins to change when you realize that, that really nothing belongs to us, that it all belongs to him. You know, when we come in here, you know, Henry and I, we know that this, everything here belongs to, that's the Lord's TV. You know, I have a computer at home and it just has a different nature than the computer that's here. You know, when we're spending the church money, it's a lot different for whatever reason than, you know, when I'm spending my own money. But then the Lord reminds me, it's all his money. It's all church money, so to speak. And, and that right there is so important because when you understand the ownership, 
then you move into this place of stewardship. And I've told you guys uh, before, but it, just in case, I know there are a couple of you that write notes. I'm so proud of you. Um, there's six things that we're stewards of that I know for sure. Number one, there's, I always say four G's and two T's. Four G's and two T's. Number one, the gang, your family. You're a steward of your family. You can't just say, well, I presented the material to my children and whatever they do with it, that's between them and the Lord. No, man, you have to understand that God gave you those children. They belong to him. You have to do everything you can to make sure that your hands are clean, that you've presented them to the Lord to the best of your ability. So we're stewards of our family. That's not my son, my daughter. It's not my wife. It's God's daughter. So we're stewards of the gang. Secondly, we're stewards of the gospel. Right? We have to preach it and protect it and preserve it. And one day I'll give an account with that. Number three, we're stewards of the gold or the money that we have. You know, and so we have to make sure that we understand that you know, where God guides, God provides. It's not ours. And so we need to make sure that we you know, spend it according to God's will. And the gifts that we have. You know, all of us here, we have different spiritual gifts. One day we'll give an account of whether or not we exercise those gifts faithfully or did we bury it. You know, it's interesting when you study the, the parables that Jesus told, you guys remember the parable? He told the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. Do you guys remember that? The talents, people had a different amount of talents. And so it didn't matter. Some had, you know, one, five, ten. You know, you have to give an account with your gifts or talents. But mina, you only got one. And what I think that's symbolic of is your life. You got one life. It's not yours. It's his. Only one life. Soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last, right? We're stewards of all these things. The gain, the gospel, the gold, and the gifts. I believe we're also stewards of our temple. This body, don't abuse it. Take care of it. Drink water. You know, exercise a little bit, man. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's like a horse that you're, you're riding and you want to make sure it's, you know, the best condition you can possibly have. That way you can serve the Lord. That's our motive. We don't exercise. I don't exercise it, you know, try to look a certain way. I don't. I, I try to take care of my body because I know that I, I want to serve the Lord, you know, the best that I can. The temple and then the last thing is time, the, the time that we have. You know, I like this poem. It says, when as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later, as I older grew, time flew. Soon I shall find while traveling on, time gone. You guys remember when you were younger how, how the summers lasted two years? Do you guys remember that? And then when you got older, you're like, wow, it just flew by. One day, it'll all be done. And we're stewards of it, you know? This is not my time to waste, so to speak. I really don't have any of that. And so, you know, looking at this psalm right here, the primary point in verses 1 and 2 is ownership. It all belongs to God. I belong to God. But that really brings us to stewardship. And so I wanted to at least mention that. When God owns everything, it changes everything. You know, when I was studying this out, it reminded me of Jesus' teaching when, you guys remember, his enemies are trying to trap and trick him. And so, you know, they wanted to upset the Romans or ostracize the Jews. They came to Jesus and they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
And Jesus said, okay, show me a denarius. And so they brought him a denarius. They showed it, and they said, whose image is it? Whose image is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And you guys remember what Jesus said? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And what that means is you and I are created in the image of God. And they were, therefore, we are to render our, our lives we are to render ourselves to God. Now, in the Greek language, the word render, it literally means give back. Give it back to whom it belongs to. And that's what we're going to see right here. You guys, God owns you. God owns everything that you have. It's not yours. It's his, your life, your time. Every penny belongs to him. And so, you know, it's an awesome truth, verses 1 and 2, it, it was like the go-to verse when Paul wanted to, to, to say that everything belonged to God, so he quotes it in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, and 28. And so with that, though, you might wonder, so then if God, if I, God owns me, then that must mean that I can mosey on in into his presence whenever I want, right? Wrong. <laughs> Which is what David then deals with next. You know, God rightfully owns everyone and everything, including me, and so what does it mean regarding me and him and my, you know, ability to fellowship with him? And that's where verses 3 through 6 come in. David asked that question, well, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? Do you guys ever go hiking? Either go up to the mountains or... The other day, I at least got on an elevator. I think we went up 16 floors. It was kind of cool. And, you know, just um, you guys know the view there is different, right? I mean, when you go up the mountain, what I want to tell you guys is when you go up the mountain to meet with God, it's a different life. Some of you are struggling here maybe tonight, because you have not had that fellowship with God. You have not really gone up the hill. Maybe you haven't even tried. Or maybe you haven't been able to because you never really studied this out, that, you know, you have to have clean hands and a pure heart. You can't be an idolater. You can't be a liar. I mean, the one thing you need in life is to it's to be in fellowship with God, and he wants you to be with him. Don't let anything get in the way between you fellowshipping with God. He owns you, and he wants you to be with him. But, you know, you have to understand that there, there are certain things that have to be right in our, in our life. You know, you're struggling, and it's been another day, another day. Weeks go by, months go by. You're not different. There's no power. You're not walking on water. You're not moving on mountains. You don't have a fire in your life for Jesus Christ. Why not? He died for you. The problem is, is you're not spending time with God. Don't blame it on your church. Don't blame it on this circumstance. It's something that you can have anytime you want to. You can ascend the holy hill. You can go into the holy place and meet with God. And when you meet with God, you will never be the same. You know, today it was just so 
I was in my office and I just put my my hand on my on my face and I was just I was just my tears were coming out. I was overwhelmed because I was talking to a man on the phone that whose life had changed. You know, and he had to go through a lot to get to this place. Uh, he had a his brain started bleeding and and he lost all his vision and he went to the hospital and I wasn't sure if he was going to make it or not, if he was going to live or not. You know, and he's a funny guy, one of those guys, you know, real, real, real rough and gruff around the, the edges, a, a witty man, you know, but, but man, you know, just harsh. And, 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 and so, you know, he went through this trial because God wants to get his attention. God's trying, God wants him to change. And so bleeding in the brain, he goes to the doctors, you know, can't see, blind. Reminded me of Saul in the book of Acts chapter 9. He went blind too. But you guys know as well as I do that even though people go through trials, not everyone changes. And that person there, they've been a Christian for 25 years and they're the same they were when they got saved. This guy right here, I could tell over the phone the first thing he said to me is, I love you. I said, what? I don't, I don't, I don't know you that well, you know. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, I witnessed a miracle. God had tenderized his life. God had changed his life. And that's what we need. That's what some of you need. Some of you here, you're... Praise God, man, you're doing, uh, you're doing good. You love the Lord. You're on fire. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, I was thinking as I was sitting back there how beautiful it is to be in a sanctuary and there's peace and there's love and there's fellowship and there's the word and there's worship and all that kind of stuff. Is, let me ask you a question. Is that how it is at home? Because it should be. There should be love between husband and wife and parents and children. There should be love between friends. There should be peace. There should be the sanctuary. There should be the word. There should be prayer. There should be worship. It should be that way. It's got to change. And the only way it's going to change is if we go into this, this holy place, if we ascend into the holy hill. But, but what happens sometimes, number one, we don't want it. We don't realize it's available to us. Or number two, when we get there, the gates are shut. You know, and you're trying to do the code and it won't work. And you want to know why? Because your hands are filthy. And your heart is not right. And you have idols in your life. And you're a liar. And what God right here is trying to do is to, to share with us we, we need to change. Who can go to heaven? It, it's kind of partly that. Who can have fellowship with God? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? You know, and when I think of the hill of the Lord, a holy place, it definitely sounds sacred to me. You know, and, and through this psalm, you can almost visualize the person ascending into God's holy place and, and you wonder, well, who is allowed to do that? And David here, he mentions four specific things. You know, you're wondering, well, who can go into the presence of God? You know, and I think that's partially talking about heaven, 
you know, forever, but I also think it's talking about earth and fellowship with him now. You know, same thing in one sense. And so, you know, you might wonder, well, what does it take? And, you know, a lot of people think it might take some ceremonial religion or, or, or something like that. But no, what we find right here is David, he goes the route, a practical sense. He says it has to do with action and attitudes. Number one, someone with clean hands. That's why we put the disinfectant back there. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> clean hands. We'll talk about it. Pure heart. Number three, you're, you're not an idolater. And that's a big one because a lot of people put, you know, things before God, themselves before God. Maybe they're, you know, loved ones before God. We've got to take care of our loved ones. Please, you understand. That's, you know, to me, the way that I visualize it in my mind is I love God first. I love my wife second. I love my kids third. That's the way I see it. And then I see ministry next. So it has to be, you know, there has to be a great love for our family, but not before God. And a lot of times what happens is people put themselves before God. You know, at the end of the day, you do whatever you want. Why? Because you're your own God. You're an idolater. And so, you know, here David is talking about not swearing to an idol. And of course, you know, not praying or making vows in their name. But, you know, at the end of the day, it comes back to these things. You know, when you look at this, it's interesting because we know the Bible well enough to know that it's not me earning my way into heaven or fellowship with God. But, but what it is, as you look at these things right here, is that this is a person whose life is bearing fruit because they're genuinely saved and they're grateful that they're saved. You know, I, I read a story about a, a man in the Civil War that, that, you know, he, he, what's it called? AWOL, you know, he split. He didn't want to fight anymore. And they captured him, and they were going to execute him. But President Abraham Lincoln pardoned him. So he went back to the war. He fought for years, and he died on the last day of battle. Now, his fellow soldiers wondered, well, what was the turnaround for this guy, you know, because he didn't want to fight in, in the get-go, but then, you know, from that day forward, he fought like no other, and he fought valiantly, and he fought to the end, and his attitude was right, his heart was right. What was it that changed him? And they believed that what had happened was, you know, that, that God had touched his heart in such a way because they found a note in his pocket years later, of, it was the letter of pardon from the president that was folded in his pocket, and that was what had carried him all those years. You know, and, and so for us, we're looking at the list right here, and it has to do with number one, you know, you're saved, you bear fruit, and, and number two, you're grateful that you're saved. And that's why you bear fruit. That's why you do these things, right? You know, we have to make sure that we really do know the Lord. You know, this is not me, again, earning my way into heaven, but this is someone who's genuinely saved. And what happens is saved people have a heart to please their Savior, right? You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, because you're wondering, well, who's really saved? Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus said, therefore, by their suits... You will know them, right? They got the suit, right? The Christian t-shirt. 
Does that make you a Christian? No. Listen, listen, please, for a second here. If there's anyone here who doesn't know whether or not you're really a Christian, you got to pay attention right now. Because this is your eternity. By their fruits, you will know them. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to read your Bible? Do you want to pray? Do you want to please God? Do you have a heart to serve Him? Do you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you have more of an appetite for the things of the world? If you have more of an appetite for the things of the world, my friend, you're not a Christian. You're not. You have to be so careful because you might die in your sins. Before you leave tonight, you got to get on your knees and ask God to have mercy on you, to open your eyes and to give you life. This is so important. Who's, who's able to go in, into the hill of the Lord? Who's able to be there in the holy place? Who? The one who's saved, and they're, and, and they're, and they're saved, and, and, they, and it's, it's proven that they're saved because of the life that they live. You know, they, they, they have clean hands. You know, so with my hands, I give, I don't take. With my, my hands, I care and caress. My hands are an instrument of affection, not abuse. I, I use these hands to serve the Lord and his people. I'm not holding a beer or a pipe in these hands. I'm, I'm using these fingers, and you guys know how it is because you have phones, and you're typing in your phone the web address of the safari, the place that you're browsing, and it has to do with God. Not all the other stuff all the time. You have clean hands, not dirty hands. See, these are the ones that are able to ascend into the hill of the Lord. You know, clean hands appear hard. I mean, if... If God would take a spiritual x-ray of my heart, my prayer is that he would see that I'm not harboring any evil inside of me. You know how wrong it would be for me to maybe say nice things about this person to their face while thinking bad things about them in my heart. God sees the heart. If your heart is not right, then, then you can't go to heaven. You can't fellowship with God. See, God sees that. You're naked before him. You know, he sees the motives of my heart, not just what I do, but why I do what I do. You know, for, for some people serving in ministry, it can't be because of position or possessions. Am I in it for a paycheck? God sees those things. And, and if it's not pure and surrendered to him, then there is no fellowship with him neither here nor there. And so you're wondering, well, who's going to fellowship with God? Who's going to make it to heaven? And God says it's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart because Jesus Christ has taken residence within them. Sometimes what ends up happening in the church is we think, well, that's just for the super Christians. That's just for the pastors. No, it's for anyone who's saved. That's what he says. Psalm 66, 18, it says, If I had harbored sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And the Lord said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. You see, David mentions two positives and then two negatives. He says they're not an idolater and they're not a liar. And so the one who goes to heaven is the one who it's clear God is first in their life. If God's not first in your life, then you're an idolater and you might not go to heaven. You'll die in your sins and you knew better. God must be first. You know, and I'm not saying it always works this way, but I will tell you this, man. That's why when I roll out of bed, I get my Bible and I get on my knees and I spend time with him because he's first. Not an idolater, not, not a liar, right? I mean, I have to speak total truth. There's no such thing as a half-truth or white lies. You've got to come to that place where you keep your word. One translation says that this person does not lie or make promises with no intention of keeping them. That's why it's so difficult for politicians to be saved. I'm not just joking. There are some politicians that are good, but isn't it crazy how some of them will get up there and they'll promise you everything and they have really no intention of keeping their word? You know, well, sometimes Christians are like that too. And so he's just describing an individual. You look at their life and you realize, you know what? They bear the fruit of a Christian. They're saved. It's evident. You know, this is the type of person who ascends into fellowship with God. This is the person who is saved and ascends into heaven. And they're, and they're blessed, you know, beyond measure. Look again at verse 5. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob. Notice the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. This person is blessed by God. He or she is right with God. And we, of course, we know righteousness is what we need to be right with God. And so, you know, again, in looking at this, you might be thinking it sounds a little like salvation by works. But, of course, we know that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 and other places, we're not saved by works. And so what we have to see this as is the fruit of our salvation not the root of it. And we got to remember that these things go hand in hand, you know? You know, we're not saved by good works. We're saved by faith in Christ. But you guys know that good works will always follow, always, always follow genuine faith in Christ, right? As James said in James 2.18, he said, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He said, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, that's what, that's what the psalmist is talking about. That's what the Bible is talking about. You know, I mean, you show you're saved by the works that you do, by the good works that you do, by, you know, living this life. Let me ask you a question, okay? And I, and I don't want you guys to be offended by this because, you know, this is, just, this is just what it's all about. Are you saved? 
Are you saved? Now, let me tell you something. You're going to want to prove it. You're going to want to prove it to yourself. You do. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? You have to examine yourself to see whether or not you're really saved. And nowadays they have these tests. So you send, I don't know if it's blood or something, and you go ancestry.com or whatever it is, and you need to find out who you really are, right? All this time you thought you were one nationality, you find out that you're, you know, you're really, you know, Jewish, or I don't know, whatever it might be, you know? And, um, and that's kind of how it is. We got to really, you know, test ourselves, you know? Who, who shall ascend into heaven? Who's going to go to heaven? Is it the one who maybe went forward on the altar call? Is that what the Bible says? Is the one who said the sinner's prayer, is that what the Bible says? The one that was raised in the church, is that what the Bible says? The one who goes to church, is that what the Bible says? No. It says right here, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not an idolater, not a liar. In other words, they live the life. There's evidence that they're Christians. You know, if you truly seek God, that's what verse 6 is saying. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him. Ask yourself that question. Are you seeking the Lord? Are you truly seeking after God? I mean, like, you know, with all your heart, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You know, I mean, look for him as if you really wanted to find him. You're like, well, God is invisible, you know, and God's kind of like, you know, wound up the clock and disappeared, you know, that's a deism. No, God is personal, and God can be found by those who really want to find him. You know, you have to seek first, the Bible says, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, and the Bible says in Luke eleven nine, 9, Jesus said, keep on seeking. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. And in the Greek language, it says, keep on seeking. Knock, and it will be opened to you. You know, that's us. That's the one who's saved. You know, the primary where we, we seek God is, is through the scriptures, right? And, and I pray that we would be in his word. You know, I mean, do you have a hunger for it? Do you really have a hunger for it? You know, sometimes you, you go to church service and, you know, you, people want to be entertained and whatever. They want all the illustrations or maybe tell me a couple of jokes. And it's okay to have some of that in the study, but primarily the substance is the word. I want to go to church. I want to hear the word. I want to open up my Bible in the morning, in the, in the noontime, in the evening. And I want to learn this because I know that this is a revelation of God. Some people want to go to church and have experience. Well, the experiences will fade away. And experiences, you always need a greater one next time. They're subjective. No, give me objective truth. Give me the word. And you seek after God. This is the generation, he says, of Jacob. Now, it's interesting how here in verse 6, David uses the name of Jacob rather than Israel. You know, Jacob and Israel, of course, are the two names for the same person, Right? You guys know that, right? Same guy, two names. Um, one kind of symbolizes the bad guy. The other is the good guy. 
kind of like us, we all have a dark side, huh? Except for a couple of you. Maybe you don't, but I think we all have that, that sin nature. We all have the dark side, and we're a bit bipolar. We kind of have the Jacob side, but it, it, it doesn't matter because what ends up happening is you come to God and you seek God and you seek his face. You get close. You get real. He saves your life and he changes your life. How many of you here have heard that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Any of you hear old dogs? No. You know, I'm going to be 37 pretty soon, man. And I, I still believe that God has a lot, of, a lot of work that he wants to do in me and through me. I want to be more like him. And I pray that you would want that as well. What happens is when you seek him, it doesn't matter how much of a Jacob you are, you're going to find him. Just like Jacob saw the face of God. Just like Jacob, he wrestled with God in Genesis 32, and he said, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And he became this nation. What will God do with your life? You know, are you, are you really, you know, getting everything out of it that you're supposed to? Are you, are you being everything that God wants you to be? Are you doing everything? Are you going to die, be able to say, I finished the race that he, that he gave me to run? Are you seeking him with everything? That's what this is about. You know, this is us, and it's interesting, in one sense, ascending to God. And, and, you know, we want to be right with him because one day we're going to stand before him and, and give an account, right? But, but then it's interesting because the rest of the psalm is him descending to us. Again, ownership, which then flows into fellowship, which then show, flows into, you know, battleship. I, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but messiahship is also a word in the dictionary, you know, and it's just, this is Jesus. This is, this is the day that's not that far away. It could be any day. It might be tonight. It might be tomorrow. It might be a couple of weeks from now, maybe a, a few months. You know, I don't know, five, ten years. You don't know. None of us know. This is the day that we stand before God. Are you right? Are you ready? Or are you playing games? With God. This is, listen, Christianity is not like, uh, like a part of your life. Yeah, I'm a Christian. No, this is your life. Are you ready to stand before Christ? With clean hands, pure hearts, no idols, you're not a liar. You know, we just, man, I just know, like even in my own life, man, that God wants to bless. God wants to do so much more in, in, your, in your marriage, in your life, in your walk, in your struggle, in your anxiety. Then, you know, a lot of us here have been experiencing. And so what we find right here, again, in verse 7, he says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, you know, the gates were for the city, the city gates, right? And, and the doors, that's for the citizens. 
And so this is general. The Lord's coming. Get ready, cities, you know, world. But, but it's also personal. You can't just make it like a big general thing. Yeah, one day Jesus is coming back. It's kind of cool. No, yeah. And you, you, you and I, we will stand before him. Lift up the gates for the city. Lift up the, the doors for the, the citizens, right? It's ready because the king of glory is coming. And some, call, I forgot what they call it, an antiphonal psalm where, where one reads part and the rest read the other, something like that. And so they're asking the question, who is this king of glory? It's interesting. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And and the king of glory shall come. And well, who is this king of glory? And then everyone would respond, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in, in battle. You know, and the emphasis here in this section is on his strength and his might in war. He's the Lord of hosts. Watch, if you put your marker here and you go over to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation is the first book of the Bible. No, it's the last. Revelation 6 and verse 15, you know, because the Lord's coming, man. And when he comes, it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, a, a war. I mean, he came the first time as a lamb. He comes the second time as a lion. He came the first time to save. He comes the second time to judge. He has a sword in his mouth, and he will smite the earth. You know, I was talking to someone not too long ago, and they're like, well, I don't know about hell. You know, I don't know about judgment. Really? Well, you know, back to verse 1 and 2, it's the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness and everyone therein. You're not God. He's God. He, he makes the rules. And so what we find is that one day God's going to come and he's going to judge this earth. All those who reject him, all those who are living their own life. Look what we read right here in, in verse uh, 15. It says, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, you know, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? You know, Revelation 19, if you turn there. Man, I'm glad I'm on, the, I'm on his side. <laughs> you know, Revelation 19 in verse 11, now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You see, he, he does it in righteousness, you see? His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a, a name written that, that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him. That's us, you guys, on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it 
he should strike the nations. And so can you visualize him there on the white horse, you know, with a sword out of his mouth? And you're like, how is he going to do it? You know, you're like, is he going to like, you guys know what he's going to do, right? He's just going to speak it. Right? Whatever the judgment is, it's all he has. When it talks about the sword in his mouth, it's symbolic of the fact that one day the one who made everything and maintains everything, who owns everything, will deal with those who have rejected him. And he's going to smite the earth. It says right there that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see, he's the king of glory. That right here in Revelation, it calls him the, the king of kings. You know, back in, in Psalms, in verse 7, he says, lift up your heads, right? In, in verse 9, he says, lift up your heads. It, it kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse when he's describing the signs of the times at the end of the age, you guys remember what he said would happen? Uh, there would be wars and rumors of wars. There would be an earthquake. I mean, there would be an increase in intensity and frequency of earthquakes, famines, pestilences, things that we see going on today. I was talking to an individual the other day. My heart just went out to him. He, you know, he's a pastor. He said, I've never, I've never, uh, I've experienced this before. Anxiety. Anxiety. He just, he didn't want to go out of his house doctor and the doctor told him that anxiety now this type of stuff is like the common cold it's so crazy the cancer you know today how many children are dying we don't see it here because we're in the united states of america all over the world they die from famine you know there's the, the negative signs there's the positive signs of israel and jerusalem i mean i'm telling you this man what we see going on today in a world where they call good evil and evil good, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, and, and Jesus said in the last days, it'll be like the days of Lot. The days of Lot. What was going on in the days of Lot? You know, they, the, the men wanted to sleep with the men. And now it's, it's a sin that they don't necessarily hide on the back alley. It's strutting down Main Street. I mean, you, you got to know, we are living in the last days. Christ is coming. It's a battleship. And so what does he say? Lift up your head. Same thing that Jesus said in Luke 21, 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And so, you know, you know, we're living in the last days and now I'm living in light of his eminent return and it just, all those things put together, it changes everything. It, it, it kind of like zaps me when I used to be spiritually lazy. It gets me out of bed. It gets me into bed sometimes when I need to go to bed, get a few hours sleep so that I know I got to wake up and spend time with Jesus. I mean, it just changes everything when you know that he's coming. You know, one translation, it says, awake, you sleepyhead. <laughs> Literally, it says that, you know? And I think that a, a lot of the church, unfortunately, is sleeping. 
Now we see right here what we are to lift up our heads. Oh, you gates, be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, oh, you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? What's his name? Jesus, huh? The Lord of hosts, that's in reference to, the God, to God's armies, he is the king of glory. And so when Jesus comes and you get left behind, don't blame him. We went over it. We covered it. I pray that if you're here today and your relationship is not vibrant, day you would come to his love. You would surrender your heart to him. You would humble yourself and you acknowledge that this is real. 